these disciples. And this is what he says in his castigation of these religious leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 2, they sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They preach, but do not practice. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? They preach, but don't practice. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. A couple of things about these guys. They are a part of the religious leadership of their day. So you got Pharisees, you had a couple other Jewish sects of the day, but the Pharisees are the traditionalists, they're the ones who have, well, Jesus had a lot of harsh things to say about these folks, some of them, but they, they were very concerned about keeping the word, which is important. But they had put there all these fences around keeping the word to help you keep the word. And Jesus said a lot of these fences you, you put up are ridiculous and you're adding to the law of God by, by all these fences that you build up. Anyway, so you got Pharisees, you also got the scribes. Now, sometimes you see scribes translated as a, uh, a lawyer. You've got, you've got these guys who, what they did is they copied the law. They, they couldn't print it out. You know, they couldn't put it on the uh, copy machine and make copies, so they copied it meticulously. These guys trained for years to do this. And they were very meticulous in copying every jot, every tittle, every part of the letter. And they were very careful about doing it. So they did this all the time. You can imagine if you sat there all day long every day copying the Bible from one scroll to the next scroll, you would become an expert in what it said because you had done it so many times. So these guys were perceived as being the ones who know what the law says. So this is who he's talking to. He says, scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Not for sure what Moses' seat is, but, but it may have been a, a literal seat at the front of the synagogue when these people would actually sit on this seat. But here's what I'm pretty sure it means. I'm not sure about the literal seat. I'm pretty sure this is what it means, though. These guys, these men, are, have put themselves in positions where they are the official interpreters of the law. They tell you what it means. Here's what it says, and we are the ones who tell you what it means. They're speaking from the seat, from Moses' seat. We tell you what the law says, and you got to do it. But then he says in verse 3, Practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. Two possibilities here. One is, he is saying, hey, these, they're pretty good about interpreting the law. They, so you need to listen to what they say, but you don't, need to listen, you don't need to follow what they do, because the two don't match up. The second possibility is that Jesus is speaking sarcastically here. And he's saying simply... And when he says, practice and observe whatever they tell you, that he is saying this with a look on his face and with sarcasm in his voice, where he's saying, these people are ridiculous. And they are trying to get you to follow what they say when they don't even live it. Are you kidding me? Don't follow what they say. Don't follow what they do. They don't know what they're doing and they don't know what they're saying. Here's what we're sure about. He is saying that these people, they have an inconsistency between what they say and what they do. You know anybody like that, by the way? Oh, let me ask you something else. You ever done that? I mean, be honest. It's just you and yourself talking, right? Just you. You're not going to share that with the rest of us. You ever had an inconsistency between what you say, what you say you believe, and what you actually live? I mean, I think we'd all probably need to raise our hands here. There's a temptation. There's, we fall into this pit at times where we say all this stuff, but then the actions don't 
don't back that up. That's what they were doing. They, they, they preach, but don't practice. They put all these burdens, he says in verse 4, they tie up all these burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, I know, you probably know this, the one, the ones for whom this applies more than anybody else are people who stand in positions like this one right here, who put themselves in positions where they interpret and they teach. James 3 says something like this when he says, not everybody, we don't need to have too many teachers because you have a heavy responsibility and, and, and man, there are all these temptations and, and there's going to be a temptation to say one thing and do another thing. So obviously, his words here apply specifically to anybody who stands up to teach or to preach or to be in a position of religious authority or leadership, you know? I mean, obviously, I think you gotta, you got to go there at some point. But it doesn't stop there, of course. You know what? You know what people out in the community say? I'm not saying this is always accurate, and I'm not even saying it's a good excuse, but I am telling you what they say, and you probably already know this. People in our communities who don't go to church... One of the top five things they say when people ask and do surveys, Gallup polls or whatever, why don't you go to church? Or why aren't you a Christian? Why, why don't you do this? One of the things on the top five list is I see inconsistencies in these Christians. They say all this stuff and then I see how they act at work. They say they believe all this stuff and I know where they go on the weekends. And I hear their language and I see their attitudes and I, and I see how they, they, they're uh, living unethically, they're living immorally. And, and I, don't want any part, I don't want any part of that. I, I don't want to be a part of a religious group where you got folks who say one thing and do another. Hypocrisy is the number one turnoff for people in our communities. Why they're not with us this morning is because they see inconsistencies in your life and mine. I mean, sh should that keep them away? No. I, I don't think so. Because there's always, there are, are always going to be inconsistencies because we are human beings and we fall short of perfection. But we, having said that, I don't think it ought to keep people away. I think they ought to recognize that. Having said that, though, to, to you and me, we need to think this. God help me and you never to live our lives in such a way as to put a fence or a roadblock between somebody I work with, go to school with, live in the same neighborhood with, between them and having a relationship with Jesus Christ, where they see in my life such a disconnect that they don't want anything to do with the Lord that I confess, that you confess. You see, he is saying here, I mean, it's pretty clear what he's saying. I think we get his point. But let me just challenge you to internalize this and think about ways in which you can practice this. That you try your best to live consistently with the things that you say you believe. Do it imperfectly, do it humbly, but do it as best as you can consistently by the power of God's Spirit to practice what you preach. I'll come back to that in just a minute, but that's what's going on with these folks. Here's the second thing. They like to be honored, praised, and respected. Look what he says. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others and so on. They like to be honored. They like to be praised. They like to be respected. Two things you may not know about this text. They, I mean, it's pretty clear what he's getting at, but they make their phylacteries broad. You remember in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 is one of the places where it says this. He says, Deuteronomy 6 is the text where he says, Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you love him with all your heart and all your soul and all of your strength. Remember that? These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall speak of them when you, to your children when, you, when you're at home, when you're out walking around and so on. You shall bind them as frontlets. Here's the text. You shall bind them as frontlets between your eyes. And he goes on and talks about some other things. So they had, uh, the, the, many, of the, many of the religious folks of Jesus' day had taken that pretty literally and they had created these phylacteries, their little leather boxes. And they, had, they, would make, they would make a very small copy of about three or four different passages from the Old Testament. Very small, right, right, really small. And they would put those little copies of those verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 is one of those and a couple more. Write them very small put them in these little leather boxes. They're called phylacteries. And then they would take those phylacteries and put them on their head. You've, you've seen this still practiced by some Orthodox, uh, those of some in Orthodox Judaism today. Put them on their heads and put them on their arms. They're phylacteries. That's what it is, that little leather box. Got the law in it, got the word in it. And so they make their phylacteries broad. These fringes are these, they would wear these coats, kind of like a shawl. And on the four corners of the shawl, of, the, of, the, of this, this coat that they would wear, on the four corners would be this fringe. So, I mean, they would, it became a thing how broad the phylactery is, this leather box, and how long the fringes are on your shawl, your, your coat that had something to do with how religious you were. So you'd make it broad, make the fringes long, so the people would look at you and see, oh man, they would say, he really loves the Lord. Man, look at him. Look at, look at how religious this guy is. So they would, so would do all this stuff, and you, this may remind you of Matthew 6 where Jesus says, they, they go to the corners and they have their prayers. They make a big deal out of it. They make a big deal out of giving alms. They make a big deal out of fasting. They change their clothes, all this stuff. Why? You get this, right? Why, why are they doing this? They're not doing it for God. They're doing it so people might look at them and say, man, how religious and how spiritual. What a good, what a good guy. What a good woman this person is. I'm just amazed. That's what they wanted. They wanted the praise of people. They like the titles. They like these greetings. Verse 6, they like the place of honor at feast. Put me in the best seat. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. They like being called rabbi by others. Rabbi means my teacher. That's all it means. My teacher, my master. I like being called rabbi. You're not to be called rabbi, he goes on. Not to be called father. Not to be called instructor. So they liked all these titles. Look, they wanted, they wanted the, 
They wanted the title so that people might know, look at how educated I am, look at how religious I am, look at how much of a position of authority I am in over you. So they like to be honored, praised, and respected. That's what they liked. All right. Now, think about it. But you. Look at verse 5. Not verse 5. Verse 8. But you. Notice the transition here. This is what they do. They, they don't do what they say. And number two, they do what they do because they want to be honored, praised, and respected. That's why they do it. But you. All right. So Jesus is he's talking to the crowd about these people. But now he says, okay, but let me talk to you for a minute. But you. You, you don't seek these honorific titles. You don't, you don't pursue this. The three he mentions here, by the way, are rabbi and father and instructor. The first and the third are very similar. Rabbi means my teacher or my master. Father. And then number three, instructor. You don't seek titles. Now, let me... Let me um, be, be clear here. There are other places in the Bible where titles like this, or at least descriptive phrases, are used. I don't think he's trying to be—he's uh, trying to make blanket prohibitions here about using any kind of a title. If you're in an academic setting, then you probably are called, or, or a, uh, a different setting other than church, a work setting, an academic setting. You—you you may use a title. You may use doctor, or some other kind of descriptive title. In a context like that, I don't. I, I, in fact, I'm I'm confident he's not saying that is wrong. I don't think he's even saying that it's wrong in a religious setting for you to say somebody is my teacher. He's a teacher of mine. He's one of my instructors. He's one of my whatever, you know. And Paul would even use that word father in another context to talk about his um, his being in a position of spiritual leadership over someone in that he led them to the faith. That's not Jesus' point here. His point here is, why do you do what you do? Do you do what you do religiously because you want people to use some sort of a title? I do think, by the way, because of what he says down below, he says in verse 8, you have one teacher and you are all brothers. I think, applying this text to you and me, we need to be very careful about how we use religious titles in religious settings. I think Churches of Christ is usually not a major deal, right? We've, I think we've learned that lesson fairly well. We typically call one another by our first names, right? Or we, we might say brother or sister. Um, we need to be very careful of anybody, especially someone in a position of uh, like a minister or an elder or whatever, that we don't use any kind of special title to refer to someone. I think that, that, that kind of thing is inconsistent with the spirit of what he's saying here. So a minister just, is just a member of the church. You know, an, an elder, yeah, we're respectful to our elders, but we don't use... Titles are going to elevate them or elevate preachers or ministers in some respect, right? That's what he's talking about here. We don't do what we do uh, out of a desire to be honored by some sort of a title. Now here, look at this, all right? Here's the main point of this. Said all that to get to here. I think the main point of this 
is what he says in these verses. Look at this. All right, I want you to hear this. Verse, verse 8. <clears throat> you are not to be called rabbi. All right, here it is. He says this three times. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. Okay? You have one teacher. Who's, who's that teacher? I think he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about himself. Or God, you have one teacher. All right, look at verse 9. Call no man your father on earth, for you have what? One father. That's God. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor. It's just interesting how he does that three times. You have one teacher. You have one father. You have one instructor, the Christ. Okay? You have one teacher. You have one father. And you have one instructor. And then he goes on. And he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. His point here, and this is his main point, is what you do religiously, what you do in your life, you do it not so people will honor or respect or praise you, but so that God will be honored, glorified, and praised. That's why we do what we do. I'll get to my application here in just a second. But that's the main point of this, okay? Seek to please God only. It obviously applies to spiritual settings. It applies to when I preach, I ought to preach, not so you're going to pat me on the back and say, whatever, that was a good sermon, or whatever, right? When you lead a public prayer, you don't lead that public prayer so the people are going to say, man, how eloquent he is. Or what a beautiful prayer that was. Or when you lead singing, or when you do anything, especially what happens on this stage up here, we need to be very careful that our motivation is not to please you or to do it so that you will respond in some kind of way. We do, it, we do what we do up here for him. It doesn't stop there, of course, but that's one obvious application of this. Whatever is done in a religious leadership setting needs to be done to glorify God above. But, of course, it extends to all of us. Why are we doing what we're doing, we're doing here? Why are we singing? Why are we praying? Why are we studying? Why are we, why are we here? Why do we do what we do? We do it because we want to honor God. But it extends to what we do outside of this building why are we involved in whatever we're involved in? Why do we send cards? Why do we cook food for those who need food? Why do we do what we do religiously? So that people will praise us? So that people will thank us? So that people will think we're good? Or we're religious or spiritual? All of us need to check our motives whenever we do some sort of act of goodwill. Whether we, when we're giving, we're praying, or fasting, or serving, or whatever. Check your motives. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this to please someone? Or am I doing this, first and foremost, for my Creator? But it applies beyond spiritual settings as well. I found this interesting. I read this article by Richard Beck. And he was talking about this text. And the title of the article is there, The Politics of Exalting the Humble. And he says this text has something to do, something to say to any kind of system that has power structures. Because what Jesus is talking here about here in Matthew 23 is a power structure system. You've got the scribes and Pharisees who put themselves on a stage. They put themselves on Moses' seat and they pretend that they are in authority over the people. The people they're often called the people of the land. Just normal people. Normal So they put themselves in Moses' seat in a position of authority and power over the people of the land, the commoners. So Beck says in this article 
that we need to be very careful when we have a system that's guided by any kind of power structures, that people in positions of authority or power especially are motivated to violate what Jesus restricts here. Let me read you something. Back in that article talks about a study that was done in 2003, about three researchers, or they shared the research back in 2003. It was unpublished, but they shared the results of it, and these two psychologists, and it's called, it's been labeled over the years, it's called the cookie experiment. Listen to this. Experiment was about power and how power affects entitlement. In the, in the cookie experiment, there were three participants of the same sex who were asked to discuss various political issues and make policy recommendations. One of the three participants was given the role of judge and asked to assign points rating the quality of the recommendations made by the other two participants. All right, you see this? So you got three, so you got three women, or you got three men, you put them in a room, and we're going to ask them to talk about politics and make policy recommendations, but you choose one of them to be what you call the judge. And that judge is going to assign points based on how he or she thinks the recommendations of the others in the room are. Okay, so this placed the judge in a high power position relative to the other two. About 30 minutes into the discussion, the experimenter brought the three participants five cookies on a plate. And the number of cookies was carefully chosen. All right, how many people in the room? Three. How many cookies? Five. Five cookies, three people. Someone isn't getting a second cookie. Who could that be? What the researchers observed was that the person in the high power position, can you, can, you, can you see where this is going? The person in the high power position was significantly more likely to take a second cookie compared to the other two participants. In addition, the person in the high power position was more likely to eat with their mouth open and to leave more crumbs on the table. Beck concludes... He says, power affects us. Power tempts us to take more cookies for ourselves. And power tempts us to leave messes for others to clean up. That's sort of fascinating to me. Probably, I think that's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Think about how that might extrapolate from that, any, any kind of lesson for us. This applies to religious settings. Anybody in position of leadership, in position of authority, needs to be very careful. But it extends beyond that. Everybody in here is in a position of power, authority over people in some context. Many of you have people who work under your authority at work, in the marketplace, in the workplace. How, how, do, you, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you treat the people who, who are beneath your authority, or under... under the auspices of, of your power. How, how do you treat those, those people? You see, there's a temptation, and Jesus is getting at that with these scribes and Pharisees. And if you look at the rest of the chapter, I mean, he really has some, some choice words for them. But this applies to us at home. We're in positions of authority as moms, as dads, at school, or any time we are given power over someone else. 
How do we handle that? What do we do? How do we treat people? You, you know, I mean, power corrupts, right? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely, as you've heard before. How do you apply this? How do you apply this? At work, at home, at school, in the neighborhood. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? At the very end of this, this is where he ends up. This is where he goes at the very end of this text, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Why do we do what we do? You see, the point of this, he's getting to, and I think he is identifying these, these power structure systems, and he's saying that you need to remember that if you exalt yourself, if you want the best seat, if you want the title, you want the respect of people, you may be able to get that, but you do not get the smile of the only one who matters. You may be able to please people. You may be able to get people to respect you by power or by accomplishment or whatever. But your primary concern is so that you might get the smile and the favor of the one who created you. That's all that matters. He's your rabbi. He's your father. He's your instructor. And he's all that matters. And getting the acclaim and getting the praise and getting the respect of people, it just isn't worth losing the respect of him. That's his point. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do as Christians. We do it to honor the one who created us. You know, and this is Matthew 23. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. He's going to go in, in this, this last week of his life, he's going to go into that upper room and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. And I think they're going to remember that lesson for the rest of their lives. I know they do because they refer back to it. He goes into that upper room and God incarnate, God in the flesh, takes off that outer robe. He gets on his knees and he washes the feet of the apostles. And he says, this is the most important lesson you can ever learn. You serve people. Honor God by becoming a slave, by becoming a servant. And that's how Jesus ends this text. Why do we do we humble ourselves to exalt the name of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, we invite you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Suppose you already have. If you haven't yet come to a point where you're ready to obey Him, we would love to talk to you about Jesus, about why we confess Him, why we live the way we live, why we try to follow Him. But maybe you've come to a point in your life where you're ready to identify as one of Jesus' disciples, one of His followers. You do so by confessing your faith in Him as God's only begotten Son, by putting Him on, by getting dressed in Him in baptism. And as the waters flow over you, symbolically, your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're added by Him to His body. And we invite you to make that public confession today. If you need to come back to Him having obeyed the gospel at some point in the past, you were baptized weeks, months, years, or decades ago perhaps, but your life lately has not been consistent with the confession you made then. Your profession lately by your life has not been what it ought to have been. Why don't you make things right with him if you need to? Let's stand and let's sing this song. I hear.